A few weeks ago, I experienced a real moment of pleasure, a moment that most of you have enjoyed yourself. It's that moment of pleasure when you get in your car and you turn it on and beaming forth from the dash is the check engine light. And it just brings so warmth to your heart knowing that that light is on. And I did probably what most of you did. I drove around a few weeks just hoping that the mount light would magically go away. To no one's surprise, it did not. And I decided to take the car this week to the auto mechanic. I drove up to my auto mechanic, Chris, and told him about the annoying light on my dashboard. He said he would check it out and call me back. And so he called me back and he said, well, Mr. Phillips, You have to understand that a car gets its electricity from the battery. From the battery, goes the electricity goes to a fuse box, and then your fuse box then sort of runs the electrical components on your car. And from that fuse box, there's one small wire that goes to the check engine light soon. And we can either just pull the fuse out or we can clip the wire, and you will never have to be worried about the light blinking anymore in your car. And I was like... Is that it? Just clip my wire? Well, that's not exactly how the conversation went. And you know why. Because I didn't have a problem with the light on my dash. I could have taken care of that. I had a problem with my engine. The light was simply pointing to a much bigger problem. And that's what I had to worry about was the internal problem of my engine, not the external indicator. Well, we're in our study of Mark here, and Jesus has primarily been concerned about taking the light and refracting it or bending it in on himself so that we can see Jesus Christ properly. But in chapter 7, he begins to do something very uncomfortable. He begins to, to take the light and bend it in on ourselves. Jesus wants us to see ourselves properly. Because if we're not able to see ourselves properly, there's no way that we're going to be able to see Christ properly. In Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah is referring to the priests and the prophets of his day when he states this, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. You see, the priest and the prophet in Jeremiah's day understood that there was a wound that the people had, but they dress it or they address the wound as if it's not serious. It's a superficial problem. And Jesus is not like the false priests or the prophet of Jeremiah's day. He's calling out to the people and he's saying, look at verse 14, hear me, listen up. All of you, it it pertains to everybody within my voice's hearing. Understand, I, I want you to put some things together. I've been asking you to put some things together about me, but now I'm going to ask you to put some things together to hear, to see, and to understand something about yourself. And in these verses, Jesus puts us on the operating table He rolls in the high-powered surgical lighting and He exposes us to our wound. The sobering diagnosis is that we are unclean, we are defiled, 
and therefore we are unfit for the presence of God. When Jesus gets us on the operating table, He rolls in the high-powered lights and His diagnosis is that we're unclean. And the wound isn't superficial, it's fatal. And no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we might take care of the lights on the dashboard of our lives, it'll never be sufficient. Everyone in the sound of my voice, everyone in the sound of Christ's voice, everyone who ever has lived has engine failure and needs a whole new engine. Now, some of this is going to be hard to swallow, but we want to see it correctly, so I want you to pray with me. Lord, when we come to this passage, because of our sinful nature, we would read right by it and not think about ourselves, but maybe think about the problems that other people have. We might even be sitting here excited about this sermon for the person that we're sitting next to. But here is a sermon that applies to each of us. And if we do not see this sermon, we will not see you. And so we need your help. Mercifully, truthfully, Open us up that we might see ourselves like you see us. Amen. Look in verse 15. Verse 15 is actually a parable. The disciples tell them to explain the parable. And it's more or less a one-sentence sermon. You might wish for some of these sermons on Sundays. Just give us the one-sentence sermon, Paul. Just kind of capsulize all of it in one sentence. And this is what Jesus says. There is nothing outside of person that by going into him that can make that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. So in this one sentence sermon, this one parable, Jesus sums up these three things that I want us to talk about. First, he exposes the false remedy to our problem. I believe we all understand that there is some kind of problem and we're working towards some kind of remedy And he's exposing what one common false remedy to our problem is. Secondly, he's identifying what the real problem is. And we'll see that that's our heart. And then I think he begins to point towards a solution. First, the false remedy. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him that can defile him or make him unclean, some of your versions say. See, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the Pharisees and he's agreeing with them that there's some kind of problem. There's some kind of issue of defilement or clean versus unclean, or you may have some sense of it in your own life, some inadequacy. I I can't quite get it together all myself. and, And there's something else that I'm missing or not doing, and I feel inadequate or sometimes unclean. But there's a tendency both in our day as there is in the day of Jesus to assume that the solution to the problem or the way to become clean is an outside-in approach. 
We see that there's a problem, and typically we approach the problem saying, what's the, what's the solution? And most of the time, for ourselves and the people in the text, they use an outside-in approach. I thought about this a couple of weeks ago when I was listening to uh, NPR about how politically we try to solve our problems with the outside-in approach. And while I was driving to work, the NPR interviewer was interviewing the, the mayor of Toronto. And this was just after they had captured these 17 young men who were planning a terrorist attack all around the province of Ontario. And so the interviewer from NPR is asking the mayor, you know, what his assessment of it is. And he says this, we were shocked. I mean, how could this group of young men become so alienated? In Canada, we don't expect these kinds of occurrences. The host from NPR, sort of in a, a bewilderment, said, what can you do? I mean, Canada already has a very open society, liberal immigration laws, good social services. Are you at a loss now, Mayor, as to what to do? Do you hear the context of this interview? The mayor himself is saying, we've set up these external pieces thinking that if people live in this place, then they're going to be okay. And we're at a loss to explain it. And the NPR person is saying, understandably, what else can you do? What other external pieces can you put together to take care of this internal problem? You see, the best thing politics can offer is an inside-out solution or an outside-in solution. Many people here have placed their trust in the government in some way. They believe the answer to most of our problems lie in a particular political party. Certain Supreme Court justices being nominated to the court. If we could just have some special laws, certain social services, education. See, all these are outside-in approaches to the real problem. Politics has no more ability to deal with our problems than food. You see, food doesn't deal with it because it just enters our mouth. And Jesus is very descriptive here. It goes into our stomach and then out into the toilet. That's what happens with food. It bypasses the problem, which is our heart. And politics, like food, bypasses the real problem. Some understand that politics don't work, and so they turn to religion. Nonetheless, the world religions, as well as many people who fill Christian churches today, still have this outside-in approach. Most world religions are based on an outside-in approach. What do I have to do externally to make sure I'm okay internally? Many people in Christian churches have this same view. They have an outside-in approach. And this is the very thing that Jesus is addressing in this passage. The prevailing wisdom amongst the Pharisees, and in all likelihood amongst the disciples, was the same here. And I call this mindset the maintain, abstain diet. The, 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 
the religious people of the day and in all likelihood the disciples are on what I call the maintain, abstain program or diet. We talked about the maintain part last week, chapter 7, verse 1 through 13. We need to maintain our traditions. We've got to go to the right church. We've got to say the right creeds. We've got to sing the right songs. We've got to get baptized. We have to give more of our money away. We have to faithfully serve on committees, go on mission trips, read our Bibles, say our prayers with every head bowed and every eye closed. We have to maintain our traditions. And while we're on the maintenance religious program, we also have to be on the abstinence program. There are certain things we can't have or we can't do. So we make sure we don't eat the wrong foods in the case of the Pharisees. We stay away from certain movies, shady characters. We abstain from alcohol or smoking or gambling. We try really hard to be good. We keep up the maintenance and abstinence program long enough. And this is what we believe. God will be pleased. He will see us as worthy. He will come in, bless us, and heal our hearts. That's what a lot of people believe. And that, in this text, is what Jesus is saying will not work. That is an outside-in approach to your problem. And the outside-in approach is never going to work. People can honor me with their lips. They can do that on the outside. But their hearts are what's at problem. And the heart of every person is far from me, even if they're trying to maintain or abstain from certain things. Listen, the problem, Jesus is not saying, I have a problem with these activities. Jesus, I want you to hear me say, He's not saying, I have a problem with traditions, with maintaining or abstaining from certain things. That's not what He's saying. He's saying when those things become the answer to your internal problem, then I have a problem. That's when I have a problem. When you take the external things and say those things are fixing my internal problem. What happens to those people who are on that kind of religious diet is the same thing that happens to everybody who's on any kind of outside-in approach. Everybody who's on an outside-in approach, this is what happens. Jesus gets displaced. If you're on an outside-in approach, Jesus gets displaced. Your works, your efforts begin to take the center stage. And I want you to see this. This is the... This is what you must see, what we must see. Jesus gets displaced. We put our works, our efforts, in the middle and under the cloak of religion. We demanded that we demand that we are worshipped. You see, because I've done it. I deserve it. God owes me in some way because I've maintained the traditions and I've abstain from the things that nobody should do. And you stand there, and I stand there, and religious people stand there saying, God owes me. And they find themselves up above God. 
believing that they should be worshipped. So it's not having these things, it's how you use these things that Christ is repulsed against. So we need to ask ourselves this question when Jesus is exposing this false solution. How have we fallen for the false solution ourselves? How have we believed that by maintaining or abstaining from things, we deserve something? That God is going to come in and bless us and heal our hearts just because we've done those things. Secondly, he exposes the real problem. He says this, the things that come out of a person. Now, here's the problem. It's, it's not the external pieces. Those things are just lights on the dashboard. We're trying to get to the real problem, the engine. The things that come out of a person, things that come from his heart are what make him unclean. You see, Jesus is clearly stating the problem here is not just that there is evil. The problem is not that there is evil. The problem, the Bible clearly states, is that we are evil. The problem isn't that there is evil. The problem is that we are evil. Luke chapter 11. Jesus is talking to His disciples about prayer. And He says this. And and you read through this. You've read through it many times. And you just casually go through this and listen to this. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And this is going to say, well, it's kind of like this. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Of course, of course you wouldn't do that. Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion. I mean, you disciples, you understand if, if you operated in this way, if your son asked for something, you, you wouldn't just give him the opposite, would you? And this is what he says. If you then, pointing to his disciples... Pointing to the religious people, he says, Now, if you then, you who are evil, you hear that? He just kind of casually tosses that in in the text. You, you're doing a good thing. You would give your sons or daughters things. But you, you who are evil, if you did these things, you know how to give good gifts to your children. See, this is tough. Jesus is looking at us. He's not just looking at the poor Pharisees. He's looking at all of those people and saying, you are evil. That's what I'm trying to bend the light in on. It's not that you just have external problems. You're the problem. And if you don't see you as the problem, then you're never going to see me as the right answer. It's tough, and here's what happens. Here's what happened in my own heart, and I suggest it's happening maybe even right now in yours. Your heart hears this. It hears this information that maybe you even have thought, but you've never heard somebody look at you and say, the problem is you. You are evil. And your heart begins to whisper to you and say, You know, this isn't the feel-good message I thought I was going to get today in church. 
Hey, I'm not that bad. Perfect? No. Evil? No way. Well, I'm not perfect, Paul, but if you just knew my circumstances. I'm not really hurting anyone. And a thousand other little lies that your heart whispers to you to convince yourself that your wound is superficial. And because it's superficial, you can probably take care of it yourself. And you don't really need a Savior. You're your Savior. The heart is unclean. It's like a blown engine. It's desperately gasping and chugging along. And it's begging you, one more chance. Give your heart one more chance. And Jeremiah says, no more chances. The heart is beyond pure. Your heart doesn't need to be fixed. You have to have a new heart. And in case there's any confusion, in case you're sitting there like I could have been sitting there many years ago saying, that's just not me. I don't believe my heart is in that kind of condition. Jesus Christ lights up the dashboard of everybody's life at the end of this passage, verse 22. And He says, let me just show you all the lights that are on in your life to make sure you and I understand the real problem is our heart. Look at this unkind list starting in verse 22. See, what comes out of the heart are evil thoughts. Things like sexual immorality. Any kind of thought of sex outside of marriage. That, that's not just a problem externally that you need to shut off. That's an internal problem. That indicates you have a heart problem. Theft. Taking objects or taking credit that's not your own. Murder. Adultery. Even thinking about it. Coveting. Craving something that's not yours. A craving that if I just had a little bit more, then I'd be okay. Wickedness. Do you have a desire to injure another person? Do you take delight in somebody else's failure? Deceit. Concealing the truth so that you would benefit. Sensuality. An appetite for things that are beyond your control. Envy. You have an evil eye. Slander. You make statements that are meant to injure another person. Pride. The thought that because you keep the traditions, that you keep the regulations, because you preach from a pulpit or you serve in a church, that you're better than most people. And God owes you. Foolishness. The belief that you're just not that bad. If any of those are lights on your dashboard, 
Those are not the things that you need to clip off. That just tells you you have a much deeper problem and the problem is with our heart. Finally, the third thing I want us to talk about is the solution. What's the cure? I mean, if what I'm saying is true, who or what can come in and rescue me? Who can solve the problem? Who can make this feeling of being unclean clean? And if you notice from chapter 7, verse 1 to the verse we finished with, 23, at least in this text, Jesus doesn't say. I mean, I just read through it over and over thinking, what's, I mean, what's the solution? And at least in this text, the way Mark has it, he doesn't say. And I thought, well, why, why doesn't he say clearly here? And it may be that, you know, Mark records it and, and he just doesn't record every single conversation and Jesus follows up with it. Mark just realizes he's going to have the answer at some other point in the text and he doesn't feel pressed to say it at this particular point. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's that Jesus wants the weight of what he said to sink in. He doesn't want you to just race by and say, oh yeah, I've got a problem. Let's get to the solution. How am I going to get out of this mess? He, he just wants it to sit. He just gives his, his one sentence sermon and then he sits down. He says, you're chasing after a wrong solution to a problem that's fatal and you have it and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, let's pray and go home now. And he just maybe wants you to sit a whole week saying, gosh, I need to think about that. Maybe he wants to see if anybody's going to pursue. He's kind of laid it out there as the problem. And then as he's walking on to the next town, it says in verse 24, he, he arose and he went away to another region. Maybe he's just wondering if anybody's going to come following after and saying, I, you hit me right between the eyes on that. I see it. I, I understand I have a problem. I've, I've tried to work it out. And, and I just didn't hear the solution. Can you help me? And he's just wondering if anybody's going to come after him. Or are you going to live your life? And I, am I going to live my life just like I did with the engine light? You see it. You know it. But you just keep living. Hoping that just sort of magically the light's going to go off. And every day you wake up and the lights are on. They're blaring at you in your mind, in the way you live, and how you act. And you just somehow hope it's just all going to go away. And it doesn't. Well, the answer to the question is where I want us to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. It's an Old Testament passage that I heard Tim Keller explain. And I'm going to use part of his explanation. And it's also a passage that all the religious types that Jesus would have talked to, be talking to, they would have understand, they would have understood this passage. They would be familiar with this passage. They should have understood who Jesus was. Zechariah chapter three, verse one. What we see here is Joshua, the high priest, standing before an angel of the Lord. In the first 
few chapters of Zechariah. Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet. There are eight visions, and he just describes them in these first couple of chapters. I had this vision, and then I had this vision, and then I had this vision. And here we are in chapter 3, and one of his visions is a visit to the temple. He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, just like you might think of yourself, standing before a judge. And here's the prosecutor, Satan, standing here saying, Joshua, the high priest, he's guilty. He's unclean. He's defiled. He's not worthy to stand in the presence of the Lord. Now, the high priest, if the high priest is standing before the Lord, we think of that as the one day of the year he goes into the Holy of Holies and he stands before the presence of the Lord. And it says he needs to to bring incense in. He needs to kind of cloud things up because in Leviticus it says if, if that doesn't happen, the glory of the Lord would come down and just obliterate the high priest. So we've got to kind of obscure the glory of the Lord. We can't just see Him in in all of His purity. And so the high priest comes in and he's coming into this place and he's standing before the Lord. And the week before this happens, the high priest just kind of goes in seclusion so that he, he doesn't have any chance of touching anything unclean. People bring him food so he doesn't have any chance of eating anything unclean. And the night before he's going to go visit this place, he stays up all night praying, reading Scripture. And when he goes into the place, he wears one piece of fine white linen. And that's the picture that Zechariah is seeing. This high priest, the, the perfect one, he's done all the external things and he's there before the Lord. And then look. Verse 3, Joshua, I mean, Zechariah must have been shocked at seeing this. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel and he was clothed with filthy garments. It literally means his clothes were covered in excrement. And Zechariah is looking at Joshua, the high priest, who he knows would have not been able, even able or allowed to enter into this presence in this way. And he's saying, how could this be? And God, I think, here is giving Zechariah a vision, the ability to see humanity the way God sees humanity. Despite our best efforts in the high priest, we've, we've kept all of the traditions We've abstained from all of the things. Even when we present ourselves before God in the the finest white linen, when God looks upon us, He sees our clothes covered in excrement. You see, there's no way we can cleanse ourselves. There's no way that can happen. Verse 4, remove the filthy garment. And he said to him, behold, circle that, behold, pay, pay attention. If you've been sleeping through the vision, if you've been sleeping through the sermon, wake up. See this one point. The next word, you've got to get it. I, I, the Lord, 
I have taken away your iniquity. I will clothe you with pure vestments. You can't do it yourself. But we don't need to go home disheartened because I can do it. I've done something you can't do. I'm going to clothe you with a righteousness, with a cloth that is not your own. And when you have that, you can stand before the Lord. Hear now, verse 8. Behold, pay attention again. Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, the other priests, they are men who are just assigned. We're looking at you and we're understanding we've got to see beyond you, Joshua. We've got to see something else. And what is that? Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. The stone that I have set before Joshua. One single stone. A stone with seven eyes. It sees everything. And I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Do you see? You see, a new Joshua had to come. Another Joshua. Another high priest. Someone who was clothed in fine white linen. Someone who could stand before God Almighty and not look like this Joshua did. Somebody else has to come. And he has to take his garment and put it on us so that we have any hope in standing before God Almighty. He gives us His righteousness on the cross. And on the cross, He takes all of the excrement of our lives, which includes self-righteous, self-motivated, self-worship, and He puts it on Himself. And He says, now that that's happened, you can stand eternally before God Almighty. We're the problem. We are evil. Many of us in this room have attempted religiously to say, I'm not that bad pastor because I serve on the committees. I'm the first one to volunteer. When you call me, I come. And when I get to heaven, God owes me that. And He does not. And you cannot do enough. The good news, the Gospel, is that He's done it all. He's done everything. And you see, when you understand that, when that becomes the motive, when that becomes the engine, when you, you take the heart of stone that you have and replace it with a heart of flesh, then you can start doing these things. You can maintain your traditions. You can have discipline. But because you love the Lord, not because you have to do it and He owes you it. Do you see how you just turn it around? You take all of the things that you want to do it, but you don't do it self-righteously anymore. You do it because you love Christ and you want to be more like Him and you want to serve Him. We have to ask ourselves, 
when we look at this one sermon, are we following after a false solution? If we are, we believe that the problem, the wound, isn't that bad. And we spend our lives just trying to clip off the little wires on the lives of our dashboard, hoping that the engine will be fine. It will not. It's beyond cure. Jesus is that cure. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we have hearts, even in the delivery of the sermon, I, I, I hear my heart saying, Paul, you're not that bad. Pretty decent sermon here. God would be pleased. I, I move into the spotlight that belongs to the glory of God. I, I put on a garment that I believe is white enough. And it's just not true. It's a lie. And I'm able to see it, thankfully, because you have traded out that heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh. Lord, there may be people here this morning that have a heart of stone and they've been convinced by that heart that they have a heart of flesh and they're wrong. Would you speak to those people clearly? Lord, there, there may be people who need to, to follow along to, to say, yes, that's, that's what's speaking to me. I, I need to know more about Jesus Christ. Would those people follow? Would they not just run out into the world and live their lives with the lights flashing before them and just say they'll get to it later? Lord, for those who know they have a heart of flesh, may they shout that it's not because of them. It's because of Your glory, Your cross, Your mercy, and Your grace. Holy Spirit, You come now. Work in our lives. As we take up the offering, I'm so afraid somebody might put some money in a basket made out of a tree. Both the money and the basket. And think somehow that's going to be enough. They can give everything they have and that not be enough. So would we give with a cheerful heart? Because you've asked and we want to do what you've asked us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.